All right, so we are um, going to wrap up a little bit of where I left off last week um, and then get into some uh, new material uh, for this week. Uh, last week we were looking at section one in chapter five of the Westminster Confession on Faith. Um, and I just want to, um, well, first I want to read, um, to open us, I want to read Philippians chapter four, verses six through seven. Paul says this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I want to read um, section 1 of chapter 5, the confession which we studied, um, began studying last week. It says, God, the creator, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise and glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So last week we began looking at what that section teaches um, and um, putting those under two kind of main headings. uh, We talked about preservation, um, that God continues to uphold all his creatures in their being and in the possession and exercise of the qualities and active powers with which he endowed them. So he preserves all things. He upholds his creation. We also talked about... um, Government, how God governs His creation, that God directs all the actions of His creatures according to their respective properties and relations, and that God's providential control extends to all His creatures and all their actions. Last week we talked about um, the idea of deism, that God is absent from His creation, that He created all things, spun the world into existence, and then stepped away, leaving it to operate according to the laws and properties that he gave it at creation, but he is no longer active. That's, that's the idea of deism. Um, and we this, this section of the confession, uh, summarizing the teaching of Scripture, um, rejects that idea. We also talked about pantheism, that the idea that God is uh, continuing to create, that all things are in a continual state of creation. Um, it's, it's a twisting of, of the verse, uh, that God is, or the idea that God is making all things new. Um, that doesn't mean he's continually creating. We believe that uh, what scripture says, that God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day. And he is no longer creating, but he is now governing and upholding, uh, preserving all things. Um, so this week we're going to finish up uh, in the handout from last week, um, uh, the number four and five of, of the teachings um, of this section. And then we'll move on to sections two and three of the confession in this chapter. So where we left off last week, we had um, been talking about uh, government. Um, and the fourth uh, thing that we can learn from, from this section, from section one of the confession here, um, is that God's providential control is the consistent execution in time of his eternal purpose. Um, and, and this really is just a, a logical conclusion 
resulting from what the confession has already addressed and what's already been taught in the confession. And we've talked about this before. Um, If God has declared His eternal and unchanging purpose, uh, we have God's eternal decree, um, His purposes uh, that He has set forth and that He is engaging in 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 creation. Uh, Again, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, deals with God's eternal decree. Um, what he uh, ordains is we, we also know that as predestination. Uh, before time began, before he laid the foundation of the world, he had a purpose, and he has has certain decrees uh, in how things will play out. Uh, so if that's true, and then if he has created all things to serve and bring about that purpose, that's uh, creation, chapter four of the confession. Uh, he has created all the things that he's going to use. And if he then exercises complete sovereign control through his providence, which we looked at last week, in which this section of the confession addresses, his government, then his providence, his works of providence, must be working to accomplish or execute that same eternal purpose. And so we, we, we can understand what the point of his providence is. What he is doing um, is consistent. His purposes are consistent uh, from from predestination to creation to providence and ultimately on uh, to glory. His purpose will remain the same. Um, So we understand that as as, um, you know, his providential control is the consistent execution in time of his eternal purpose. So not only is it a logical conclusion of what the confession has seen. Uh, it's also explicitly taught in Scripture. In Ephesians, and I'm just, I have these um, printed for myself um, just to save a little bit of time, so I'm just going to read them here. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So there's a lot there. We have obtained an inheritance. We have a, a present claim on an inheritance. Because we were predestined, God has eternally decreed a purpose, and that, uh, and it declares that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. It's sometimes called the secret counsel of God's will. Also Isaiah 28, 29, says that this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Uh, they're declaring um, God's counsel and His guidance uh, that is supreme. And then Acts fifteen eighteen says, Known to God from eternity are all His works. God is not waiting to dis- discover what's going to happen. He's not uh, in the dark about what will occur in His creation. He knows from eternity past all His own works. So God's providential control is a consistent execution in time of His eternal purpose. Number four. Section uh, one of chapter five of the confession teaches that the final end of His providence is the manifestation of His own glory. Um, The Shorter Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
And again, as I said before, God's purposes are, are one. He doesn't, uh, his design is not divisible, uh, nor are the various parts of his creation and his works designed for disparate or different purposes. He doesn't have one purpose for one thing uh, and one ultimate end for other things. He may have certain uh, objectives accomplishing certain things uh, by his various works, but the ultimate end and purpose of God's work all of his works is the same. Uh, and and we, we can summarize it the same as the, the shorter catechism does. That the chief end, not only of man, but of his entire creation, uh, is the glory of God. So he is going about the business of manifesting and displaying his own glory uh, in his creation. So that's really the conclusion of uh, last week's um, lesson that uh, kind of paused in the middle of because we ran out of time um, but in uh, Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 5 section 1 we confess that God after creating all things from nothing continues to preserve all things and to govern all things in the execution of his eternal decree and for the purpose of manifesting his own glory as the teaching of scripture that is summarized in the confession uh, and so now we're going to move um, into uh, this week's, uh, the Lesson 3, looking at Westminster Confession of Faith, um, Chapter 5, Sections 2 and 3 together. And, and the, the big idea here is the idea of means and second causes. And this is where a lot of the mysteries of God's providence are, where many uh, go astray trying to reconcile, trying to understand what God is doing. How does he use means, second causes? Uh, where is God's sovereignty? Where does that play in? Uh, and where do those things meet? Uh, and in trying to discern those things, uh, there are many mysteries. There are things that we don't know. Um, and so we want to be careful. Uh, but I want to read first uh, the sections. And again, if you look at the handout, Lesson 3, um, this comes, um, obviously the confession uh, is the confession of faith. And then the um, proof text. And then, the teachings, and, and I'm, I'm following the organization uh, once again of A.A. A. Hodge in his commentary on the Westminster Confession that I found very helpful in a helpful organization. Uh, and so again, I'm, I'm relying on that as summarizing the teachings of the Confession. So I want to read those sections of the Confession. Um, it says, although, uh, this is section two, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And section 3, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. And so before we be, uh, dig into those, I, I want to spend just a moment to unpack uh, a bit more the aspect of God's providence that we know is concurrence. We, see, we know, uh, and we have on the board there, we understand um, there at the bottom, providence in a narrow sense. Uh, again, we have providence in a, a broad sense that encompasses His eternal decree from eternity past, His creation, uh, His external work that has been completed. He is resting he no longer creates new things. Um, but then providence in a narrow sense uh, includes the ideas of preservation and government that we looked at last week. 
and then concurrence, uh, which is what we'll spend um, some time this week and next week on. Um, so what do we mean by concurrence? We're talking about um, another way to describe it is, is secondary causes. Um, it's the idea of concurrent causes. There is God who is a, a real and effectual cause in his creation. He is working. But there is also secondary causes. He uses means that are real agents in his creation that have an effect as they act and move. They have causes. Um, and those do not negate one another. Um, last week we saw that pantheism, the idea of pantheism, confuses the creator with his creatures. That it views every action or thing as a direct and immediate manifestation. So immediate, no, no means, no, mediate, uh, no mediation. Uh, the direct and immediate manifestation of God's power. So everything is God moving and has no, no agency of its own. That's the idea of pantheism that flows out of pantheism. Uh, in other words, pantheism eliminates the agency of the creature and it negates the idea of causes at all. It's just God all the time because everything is a direct act of God. Um, so ultimately, it just negates the idea of causes at all. In deism, by contrast, we saw that God is separated from his creatures such that the creation, the creature is entirely self-dependent in its action and self-sustaining as well. Thus, deism eliminates the agency of God in his creation and negates the idea of second causes. So God doesn't move at all, except when he just spun the world into creation. Like the, the classic example, as I said last week, is the idea of a clockmaker who wind, you know, builds a clock, winds it up, leaves it alone. And so it, it negates the idea of second causes at all and eliminates the agency of God. The Christian teaching is neither of those at all. Um, Herman Bovink uh, says it this way. Christian theology teaches that the secondary causes are strictly subordinated to God as the primary cause. And in that subordination, nevertheless, remain true causes. So the creation, and, and the best example is man. Man has real agency in the world and does effect real causes in the world. And yet all of that is subordinate to the ultimate sovereignty and the primary causation of God. And so this brings the two ideas into, into view of God's sovereignty over all things. And ultimately, the, the, again, the prime example is man's responsibility. Uh, these are the, 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 um, the ideas that we wrestle with, that are mysterious. Where do those meet? God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, in particular, man's responsi uh, responsibility for sin. Both are realities declared by Scripture, though they seem to our creaturely minds at times to be in conflict. How can God be totally sovereign over all things and yet hold man accountable for his sin? If God is sovereign... How is it not his fault? May we never find ourselves ascribing to God any responsibility for sin. He is holy. And scripture is abundantly clear on that. But we see that there are deep riddles and even terrifying mysteries wrapped up in this idea. Concurrent causation. And men in attempting to solve those riddles and resolve the conflicts 
often abandon religion, abandon the practice of faith in favor of practicing human philosophy. Men crave and want a system that explains every question, that resolves every conflict in our minds. And when they encounter a fact that doesn't fit the paradigm, that doesn't fit our understanding, we beat that rogue fact into submission. We twist the facts, we twist things so that it fits our understanding and our paradigm. We twist the facts to protect the purity of our philosophy. And was that not the error of the Pharisees? The Pharisees took God's law and tried to resolve every question and ultimately constructed philosophy and practiced philosophy and not religion. They rejected the law of God. They rejected faith and ultimately rejected God himself in favor of their own law because they constructed a, a regime. They constructed philosophy and bound men to their philosophy rather than to, to God's word. That's what we're trying to avoid. And, and the, the danger here in trying to uh, go too far to resolve uh, the question and, and seeming conflict of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon, uh, addressed this idea and this, this subject. And he, he has a quote that I, I like a lot and I want to share. He says, If your Christian faith isn't one that baffles you, I don't think you've got a Christian faith. So let us proceed by accepting what God says in His Word simply because He says it in His Word. Is that circular? Yes, but that's what faith is. We see that God says it. We trust God, so we trust what He says. When we deal with the deep mysteries of our eternal and self-defining Creator, let us not be afraid to be baffled. Though we desire to see and know the glory of God in its fullness... Let us content ourselves like Moses to see of God only what he chooses to reveal, knowing our weakness. Moses wanted to see the glory of God and God hid him in the cleft of a rock and showed him only his backside, knowing that Moses, possibly the most holy man aside from Christ himself, uh, in definitely in the Old Testament, the great prophet and, and leader Moses, who walked with God, talked with God, communed with God, could not see God's face as he desired to. Let us also content ourselves with Paul to see for now in a mirror dimly, knowing that soon we will see face to face. As it says in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. I wanted to share all of that as a preface to the idea of concurrence. We're going to be talking about concurrence, uh, and government, again, um, all of these ideas, preservation, government, and concurrence, they all go together at all times. They're all aspects working together. It's not that God works concurrence one time, government another time, preservation another time. It's all together. Um, but the focus uh, for this week, the rest of this week, uh, sections 2 and 3 of the Confession, and then section 4 as well, uh, the focus really of, of what we're going to be talking about is concurrence. Um, but I wanted to, to lay that foundation, um, that we are looking at what Scripture says, summarized in the Confession, uh, and we are trying to avoid constructing something of our own um, to make sense of things. So the first uh, thing that Section 
uh, these two sections, sections 2 and 3 of the Confession teach, is that as the execution of of an eternal and sovereign purpose, God's providential control is in the case of every being and event certainly efficacious. God's work will not be undone and cannot be countered. This is again the the doctrine of the eternal decree of God. Uh, All of the teachings of the confession flow into one another uh, and inform one another, um, understanding what what Scripture teaches. Um, What God has decreed will come to pass because He is God. He is the Creator. It stands, uh, this stands as a fact, resting and proved, resting on and proved by God's own infinite wisdom and power. Nothing happens that surprises God. God did not, this, this idea, uh, this question baffled me at one time, and, and still it, in a way does, but um, you know, God didn't come into his garden and discover that Adam and Eve had sinned. Uh, he was not surprised. He was not shocked. He didn't, it's not that he did not know that was going to occur. He didn't then say, oh, I guess I need to go about the business of of redemption, of salvation. I guess I need to send Christ as, as a sacrifice. That was always the plan. His purposes are eternal, immutable, unchanging. This is also explicitly taught in Scripture. Job 23.13 But he is unique and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. Psalm 33.11 The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Lamentations 2.17 The Lord has done what he promised. He has fulfilled his word which he commanded in the days of old. And it also brings to mind, I I don't have it written here, but uh, the verse in Hebrews, it talks about the promises of God. That God, having no one greater to swear by than himself, made his promises. His promises rest on himself. And he cannot lie. And I think the way it says says it is that by two unchangeable things, he has made these promises. I'm, I'm badly paraphrasing that verse. Uh, but the point is, the teaching is, that God's promises rest on Himself. God is unchanging. God is eternal. God cannot and does not lie. And so when He promises something, when He swears something, it will come to pass. So God's purposes are certainly efficacious. They will come to pass. So He, as, as the prime cause, as the first cause certainly is an effectual cause. And so again, the idea of deism that that, uh, negates his agency and his power is absolutely not true. God is active and his actions execute a purpose which is certain to come to pass. As the creator, the king of kings and lord of lords, he is the first cause. The second thing that these sections teach is that the manner in which God controls His creatures and their actions and effects His purposes through them is in every case perfectly consistent with the nature of the creature and of His action. Again, this brings in the idea of preservation. God does not create and then 
work against and undo what he created. He created his creatures with natures, with, uh, with properties, with characteristics. And in all his works, that is preserved and sustained. Certainly much of creation, all of creation was marred by sin. And yet God's creation is preserved. Hodge puts it like this. As God must always be consistent to his own plan, so his mode of action upon the creatures whose existence and constitution have been determined by that plan must always be consistent with their natures and mode of action so determined. So again, he acts in and through his creatures consistently with the, with the same plan by which he created them. And so his actions will be consistent with their natures and with their mode of action that he has determined. So again, God's plan and purpose is eternal. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. And in furtherance of that eternal purpose, God created all things, gave to all things their natures, their modes of action, And because God's providence serves the same eternal purpose, His works of providence will be consistent with His work of creation and with His eternal decree. Said another way, God has no need to contradict Himself. And His various works performed in the execution of a unified purpose will not contradict one another. There are those who, in a deistic way, claim that God's providential control would make void the agency and nature of his creatures, namely man. Uh, this, this is also part of pantheism, as we, as we said. Um, but deism really sees the agency of God and man as in conflict, as, as uh, mutually exclusive. They say that if God is in control, and if mankind's actions unwittingly serve God's purposes, then free agency, free will, is a mirage. It, it's, it's not real. There's no real effectual cause in creation other than God. But if we think about it, can mankind not bring certain laws of nature under our control and make them serve our purposes? This is what science does. Or I would say scientism takes this to its extreme. We can control nature. We can accomplish all these things through the laws of nature, through science. Well, can the God who created these things not do the same in a much more real and complete sense? Mankind can use, without violating the laws of nature, we can use the laws of nature to accomplish things. Are we saying that God cannot do the same? That's, that should be ridiculous on its face. And yet many claim this to be the case. Hodge says it this way. If the laws of nature and the properties of things, when imperfectly understood by mankind, can be brought subject to the providence of man, there certainly can be no difficulty in believing that they are infinitely more under the control of that God who not only understands them perfectly, but made them originally, that they might subserve his purpose. Beyond that, 
Can one man not influence and persuade the free will of another man without violating his liberty? We engage in persuasion, in debate. We convince one another of things. Can the God who created the heart of man not influence it without violating its nature? And I'll paraphrase a a, a quote by A.W. Pink that uh, I read a couple of weeks ago. To say this, that God did not, by creating man and endowing him with the power of choice, render himself unable to compel man to do his bidding. Just because God created man with agency, with the ability to choose, with the ability to reason, doesn't, uh, doesn't negate God's power. He does not make himself incapable of working in and through man. He is still sovereign. He is still all uh, and, and most powerful and most wise. So let us dispense with the idea and notion that God, by exercising his power and sovereignty and providence in his creation negates the agency and the will uh, and, and causation of his creatures. The third thing that these sections teach is that God ordinarily affects his purposes through means. That is, through the agency of second causes subject to his control. Not only is God able and capable, as we've just finished discussing, but that's his ordinary, uh, ordinary way. That's his ordinary means, uh, mode of action, is to use means. And again, what do we mean by second causes? We're contrasting all other actors in the universe with God, who created all things from nothing. He is the primary or first cause in his creation. In relation to the, cre- uh, the creator, this is a way, another way to think about it, In relation to God, the Creator, all of His creatures, including us, are instruments. He is the first and primary cause. And we are instruments. But in relation to one another, creatures are real and effectual causes. We have no real power over God. God is concerned with and and cares about all that goes on with us. He desires to hear from us. He desires to, to commune with us. He desires to hear our prayers. And yet, he's, He is immutable and unchangeable. So we do not effect cause upon God. He effects cause upon us. And we can effect cause on one another and upon creation. Again, subject to His uh, primary authority. This claim that God ordinarily uses means to effect and accomplish his purposes again stands upon the character and attributes of God as revealed in scripture as well as on our own observation. God designed the parts of his creation to move, to act, to interact and relate to one another and to influence one another. And even in the Old Testament, in the case of the patriarchal period of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and many others uh, throughout the Old Testament, Um, the period of the nation of Israel, we see that although God often interacted directly with chosen men, as we talked about, communed with Moses, talked with him in the tent, he met with his people, he spoke to his prophets, revealed things to them, prophets, priests, and kings, he nevertheless ordinarily used them as means 
rather than executing his will directly. And even in the mighty works that God did, where God's power is clearly evident, and there are many, God's, God's uh, acts of judgment, um, he uses means. God used the waters of the Red Sea to destroy the armies of Egypt. Though that was a miraculous work, he used means. God's use of the earth to swallow the rebellious sons of Korah. He used the earth. He used means. God's use of the Midianites to destroy themselves during the time of Gideon. And there's many, many, many other examples in Scripture. God uses means. He uses His creation to affect His purposes. And we can see this. We can see God's guiding hand and His use of means by reflecting on our own lives. On the life and history of the church. And speaking to the children among us. Children, do... If you think about your life, the blessings that you enjoy, especially the fact that you have parents that love you and care for you, where do these blessings come from? God gave them to you. Why did He give them to you? So that you might see His loving care for you. That He might accomplish things for you, in you, and through you. God uses your parents, who are not perfect, to show you His perfect love for you. Here at Calvary, as we approach the 50-year anniversary of this church's founding, we ought to reflect and praise God for all of the men and women, the circumstances, all of the means that God has used to exercise His fatherly providence towards us to accomplish His purposes in and through this church, Calvary OPC. And let us look around for Him to do so today and every day. He, he continues to do so. He uses uh, men to lead. He uses Pastor Sharp and others to preach to us, to deliver His Word. He uses one another. He uses the saints to exhort and encourage and uphold and build one another up. Let us engage in that work with joy, knowing that God is accomplishing something that cannot be undone. That should give us great, great boldness to live the Christian life. And reminds me of the verse that if if God is for us, who can be against us? We know that God is for us. We know that His purposes cannot be undone. We know that He brings His saints into His work in a particular way. We'll talk about that in in a future week. Let us us be emboldened to live uh, the Christian life by that knowledge and understanding. Okay, we're almost out of time. So again, I'm not going to totally finish this. Well, yeah, I don't want to rush it. Okay, I do want to read to conclude Psalm 146. Psalm 146 says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. 
In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over his, the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widows. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. So next week we'll wrap this up and then go to section 4 of the Confession of Faith. Uh, But let's close in prayer. Lord God, once again we affirm and confess the teaching of Scripture that you have delivered to us and that we have received. That you are sovereign. You created all things by the power of your word. You uphold all things by that same power. And you are accomplishing uh, a unified purpose. That being to reveal your glory and to receive and uh, all glory that is due your name. We ask, Lord, that we would be conscious of this work. Make us aware of it by your spirit. Enliven us and enlighten us. Embolden us and empower us to join in this work because you have called us into it. Let us busy ourselves with this duty that you have given us. Lord, as we turn our attention now to to corporate worship, um, prepare our hearts to receive your word uh, by the preaching, uh, to join in prayer, uh, to receive the sacraments. Um, Lord, use your spirit uh, to apply these things to our hearts, to call us uh, to a uh, a greater measure of of obedience and assurance and accomplish your purposes today in us, in your church, and in all your creation. In all these things, we pray that your will would be done and not ours. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.